Welcome to another episode of the Unibytes podcast, where we share a piece of the world's news with you, our audience. I am your host, Kareem, and today we're going to be talking about Ida B. Wells, because she's just an amazing person, but she's also an incredible investigative journalist. And with the Biden team having recently released the report on the Khashoggi assassination, which we'll be discussing next week, I want to emphasize why investigative journalism is important. Why does it even matter? And there's no better person to really study during Black History Month as well than Ida B. Wells. If you really think that the Khashoggi case matters, then you see that investigative journalism is important. But if you don't value investigative journalism, you're not really going to care about what is in that report and why this thing happened. So you got to first start by understanding the power that journalists really have. They have a lot of power, like a lot of power. They present the information that we use to make decisions about what we support and don't support. And they also present the information to that governments are going to act by. So if you have a government that's working for the people, really working for the people, then they have no problem with information getting out. But if you have a government that is shady and dealing in corrupt things, then they don't want the flow of information. They're going to restrict it. And journalists are a big threat to them because that's the way that the information gets out. It's through these journalists. Here's a case in point. There's this American journalist who was in the Philippines named Brandon Lee. He was reporting about the province of Ifugao in the Philippines. He's living there with family. He picks his daughter up from school one day, and he's tailed by this car. He was shot in front of his house multiple times by multiple people who were unmarked. He suffered three cardiac arrests during surgery and spinal injuries as well. The police said that they would investigate the incident, but they didn't really turn up anything. You have to wonder why somebody would go out of their way to follow this man who was picking up his daughter from school to attempt to kill him. The reason why it matters is because he was an activist who was working with the Ifugao Peasant Movement and the Cordillera Human Rights Alliance, and he was also an environmentalist and somebody who was reporting on corruption and injustice and poverty in the region. The government considered him a threat, so they tried to red tag him. Red tagging in the Philippines is basically saying these people are communists, these people are threats to the state. The military constantly harassed him, constantly put him under surveillance, and it's no surprise that this would end up being ordered by the Filipino government, ultimately. He was flown back home to San Francisco, almost died, almost assassinated. And the reason for it is because of the work that he was doing as a journalist. Think of it this way. If the Filipino government had no problems whatsoever with transparency, openness, if they knew that what they were doing is really good for the people, why would they go out of their way to label this man as a threat to the state, as a communist, and as a, a terrorist, really? It's ultimately what they're trying to say. He's somebody who's trying to disrupt the public order by spreading this information which is false, but we don't agree with it. So we're going to silence him. It would not matter if they were really doing what was good for the people. But they understand that he was a threat to them because 
journalists force transparency. They will get that information out. And people will take that information and fight for a cause or refuse to fight for a cause. And this is exactly what Ida B. Wells would do. This is her story. Ida B. Wells is born into slavery on July 16, 1862, in Holly Springs, Mississippi. She is the oldest child to James and Elizabeth. James also goes by Jim, so at times you will hear me refer to him as both names. In Holly Springs, you are dealing with a place in the South that is rampant with racism, rampant with slavery, with white supremacy. And when slavery ends, this is where Ida B. Wells is growing up, really. The black community is trying to establish itself, trying to make a place for itself, trying to have its own economic systems, its own businesses, its own independence, really. But they're constantly in contention and competing with the white population that's there. It's to the point where you have to think, this institution that lasted for so long doesn't just evaporate. The symptoms are still there. The problems associated with it are still there. And the worst part is, they have to see that every single day. Many of the black people who are now freed had to live near their former slave owners. There's not full independence and freedom yet. You're still in their vicinity. You still have institutions like sharecropping that are keeping you from really having your own independence. Jim and Elizabeth were carpenters and cooks, respectively. Jim was a really good carpenter, to the point where he was able to open his own workshop. Elizabeth was a cook who was known for her cooking and was able to make her own money as well. But it's not as though they had no problems. One of Jim's former owners actually griefed his workshop. He went to it, he locked it, and made it impossible for Jim to go in and get his tools and do his work. What a big display of just entitlement that you are dependent on me. I am your superior. It is reflective of the idea in the South that came with slavery. White people were dependent on black people because of the system that they built. So now that black people are free and independent, are building their own independence, white people are still dependent on them. They cannot let them go. Because how can you be superior over something if that something is not there anymore? So Jim actually gets up and leaves. So he doesn't fight for the shop forever. He doesn't stay. He gets up and leaves. Him and Elizabeth have the financial means to get up and go start to build a better place for themselves. And it shows that black independence is on the rise. Even if every black person cannot get this, the fact that someone can and the fact that more and more people are trying to is a threat to white supremacy, a major threat. So when slavery ended, Ida B. Wells and her mother went to Shaw University, which changed its name to Rust College, and they started learning, started studying. And this is important because this is how she gets into the realm of journalism. It makes it e even better for her to be in journalism, as you'll see later. As a part of Reconstruction, it's not just the economic freedom that they were also experiencing and having the ability to now go to school and get educated. They were also a part of a larger Black political movement to establish their own independence and freedom. Her parents were very active members of the Republican Party, 
and they were active members of other organizations, like the Loyal Leagues. Loyal Leagues were political groups that taught newly freed black people what's in the Constitution, what are your civic rights, what's on the ballot, who are your candidates, where can you run, how can you get involved in politics. This is a big deal, because now you're giving people the agency to really do things. You're giving people the agency to really have their own platform and support their own ideas and build for their own independence. So now, naturally, they're going to be met with resistance, right? Because the model that's been in place is white supremacy. It hasn't gone away. You haven't eradicated it. The same people that were fighting in the war for the Confederates are still there. The KKK is very active in Holly Springs. There were about 15 dens around Ida when she was growing up. And so many of the black political movements, the massive parades that black people and often black women would organize to support for black independence, would be met with mass lynchings and mass murders by former Confederate soldiers. There's also another aspect of this. Beyond the, the killing, this is, this is an act of force, right? An act of violence. But the ideology of whites in the area of Mississippi was also changing in response to this black independence movement. There was this concept of redemption that coincides with the idea of the Reconstruction era. And redemption is the same era, but from a different perspective. It is from the perspective of white people trying to use criminal justice, the economy, and vigilantism to basically bring white supremacy back. Because it's under threat from black people being independent. Like I said, how can you be superior to something if that something is not there anymore. It's going on its own. It's making a better place for itself. A much better place. And it is doing it at a very dangerous rate. These are the conditions that she is growing up in. And they even intersect with gender. Many white women within the suffragist movement and within white supremacist circles were actually using their race as a way to put down black women by saying that they were not womanly. They didn't meet the womanhood standards that they had. So even within a movement for a gender, there were racial implications at play. And within the movement for race, there are gender implications at play. Ida is going to ultimately be at the intersection of both. In 1878, she is visiting her grandmother, and there's this yellow fever epidemic that comes and kills both of her parents and her youngest brother, who was an infant. So now, the onus is on her to take care of her family. She just lost the people who would have done that. She just lost her parents. She has many siblings she has to take care of now. And as the oldest one, she has to find a way to do it. So what does she do? She becomes a teacher, teaches in Mississippi, and then she moves to Memphis to get a better teaching job. And it is here where we start to see her involvement in journalism. This is not the part where she starts to be an activist. This is not the part where she just magically becomes an activist. Remember that these are the conditions she is living in and interpreting and experiencing. In her teaching career, she writes in many church newspapers about the inequality in the school system and inequality in the country. And as a resident of Memphis, she is going to use the transportation 
that is available, and that's the train system. She regularly goes by train, and there was one day that she had a train ticket for first class accommodations in the ladies' coach. First class accommodations in the ladies' coach, instead of in the segregated car. The segregated car is where people of color, black people, colored people were supposed to be. But she has a first class ticket that she got. The conductor came to order her to get out and to go to the colored section. She bit him in the hand. So he enlisted three other men to come and forcibly remove her from the car. Obviously, this is incredibly unjust. So she sues the railroad company. And she actually wins the first court case in a lower court. But an appeals court reverses the decision. So it is listed as a defeat. Regardless, she uses the time to write about her experience. And she says, I'm going to start being more vocal about these injustices in our systems, in our country, against people like me, against the other race, to put it like that. She develops a pen name, calls herself Iola, and she co-owns and edits her own newspaper, which was called The Free Speech and Headlight. The Free Speech and Headlight was a place for her to put out editorials. And in these editorials, she is calling out racism, she's calling out the disenfranchisement of black people and poor people, and she is saying that black people need to fight for their rights. She's putting out a lot of things that are not mild, they are not racism bad, and that's it. She is calling out things in a very poignant way, and this causes her to lose her teaching job in the process. So now, she is full-time journalist. Leading up to this point, she's been speaking for these issues, but the most important event is about to happen. So lynchings were things that were very much just the criminal justice system. It was a way for white people to continue the subjugation of black people because there's no way you can get justice in a system where any white person can just take you and lynch you. There's no way that can happen. There's no justice there. This is known and this was accepted. And there were very evil justifications for lynching. They were all rooted in racism. Some of the justification for the lynch law of the South was that black people are inherently, and black men in particular, are inherently promiscuous and they lust for white women. This is something that would be used as a justification for many lynchings. Here's one case. In Memphis, there is this white grocery store that is already existing. And then near it, there is this grocery store that three black men open up and is called the People's Grocery Store. They are in direct competition with this white grocery store that already exists. Now, this white grocery store owner doesn't like this competition. How can these black people take away his success? How dare they? How dare they? So, he actually works the legal system to a point where, for no crime at all, they are charged with and arrested for conspiring against whites. Opening up a successful grocery store was enough to justify them being arrested. They had not committed any crime. They had not done anything. They were trying to build their own business. 
build their own independence. And it was impossible because these people went and actually put them in jail for this. Put them in jail for conspiring against whites. I'm sticking on this topic because this right here is the type of thing that Ida is fighting against. This is what the society is. They're in jail, and these deputy sheriffs the next day take them out of the county jail, take them a mile away from the jail, and lynch them. Lynch law was justified for these men. These men were conspiring against whites. We cannot have that. And the worst part about it is what one of the men said, the last one to be killed. He said, tell my people to go west because there is no justice for them here. Those are his words, his last words before he is killed. Just imagine you're not guilty of a crime. You're guilty of existing, and your existence is antithetical to the society you live in. So you're taken, and before you're even tried, you're just killed because you were predetermined to be wrong in a situation that never had a problem. There was no crime. There was no crime, so why are we prosecuting people? The worst part about the incident was that they were arrested by these police officers who were dressed in plain clothes. So how were they to know that there was a crime even committed? This caused an altercation that got them into this position. The whole way through, they were condemned. And so Ida writes about this. She writes multiple editorials about this. And she goes as far as to actually accuse white society of wanting interracial relationships, including white women, in the stereotype that black men lust for white women, and so white men have to protect their women. Remember, she has her own printing press. This is her own newspaper. The youth in Memphis, the whites in Memphis, are so incensed that they go and destroy her printing press, run her out of Memphis, and put a bounty on her head. They wanted her dead, and they were going to do anything it took to make that happen. So she moves to Chicago, and she meets Ferdinand L. Barnett. He is a well-known attorney, and he is also the founder of The Conservator. This is his own newspaper. And with the background that he has, she is able to work on reporting more and more about lynchings and engaging in anti-lynching. She supports economic boycotts. She supports the mass migration of black people out of Memphis into the Oklahoma Territory, which was that West, the last man who was lynched, was talking about. And she goes across the country speaking out against lynching, even though there's a bounty on her head, even though people want her dead for doing that. She's doing incredible work. She collaborated once with Frederick Douglass for a pamphlet at the World's Fair, which was this big convention where they were going to talk about basically the Western world and its greatness. And they criticized the lack of African-American representation in that. She goes across the country speaking against lynching, and she actually travels to the United Kingdom to speak against lynching. When she speaks in the UK, local papers across London, Manchester, Liverpool, other cities in the United Kingdom started reporting headlines supporting her, calling out the American use of lynching, calling out the immorality in America. She is doing incredible work, and it is being recognized worldwide. I will give you a sample now of one of the pieces that she was working on and one of the actual writings that she has, because it is so telling about 
the level of work that she's doing and the impact that it has. There's this case in Georgia that takes place involving Samuel Hose. He was accused of murdering his employer because of some argument that they had about him getting paid. There was a payment issue. It's a crazy accusation to make. It's a very serious accusation, right? You're accusing someone of murder. Instead of investigating, the media in the South spent their time making up stories about how he had raped a white woman. And since he had raped a white woman, logically, by their own logic, they had to lynch him. Remember, the justification for lynching people was that black men lusted for white women, and so we must protect our white women from them. They are inherently promiscuous, and they are a threat to us. So, one paper even wrote this headline, which was helping to just further abet and confirm that he would be killed. Determined mob after hose. He will be lynched if caught. That's the headline. There was no investigation that took place. He's just immediately found, and then he is going to be lynched. In a few weeks, he was one of 12 people to be lynched in Georgia. So, Barnett and Wells, obviously working together in their own conservator and in their reporting, actually have an investigation into what is going on in Georgia. This is an excerpt from a pamphlet that they published, and the title of the excerpt is Consider the Facts. During six weeks of the months of March and April just past, 12 colored men were lynched in Georgia, the reign of outlawry culminating in the torture and hanging of the colored preacher Elijah Strickland and the burning alive of Samuel Wilkes, alias Hose, Sunday, April 23, 1899. The real purpose of these savage demonstrations is to teach the Negro that in the South, he has no rights that the law will enforce. Samuel Hose was burned to teach the Negroes that no matter what a white man does to them, they must not resist. Hose, a servant, had killed Cranford, his employer. An example must be made. Ordinary punishment was deemed inadequate. This Negro must be burned alive. To make the burning a certainty, the charge of outrage was invented, and added to the charge of murder. The Daily Press offered reward for the capture of Hose, and then openly incited the people to burn him as soon as caught. The mob carried out the plan in every savage detail. Of the twelve men lynched during that reign of unspeakable barbarism, only one was even charged with an assault upon a woman. Yet southern apologists justified their savagery on the ground that Negroes are lynched only because of their crimes against women. The Southern press champions burning men alive and says, consider the facts. The colored people join issue and also say, consider the facts. The colored people of Chicago employed a detective to go to Georgia, and his report in this pamphlet gives the facts. We give here the details of the lynching as they were reported in the Southern papers. Then follows the report of the true facts as to the cause of the lynchings, as learned by the investigation. We submit all to the sober judgment of the nation, confident that in this cause, as well as others, truth is mighty and will prevail. Ida B. Wells Barnett. She was not only working 
in ending, ending lynches, she was also working to promote feminism, to promote gender equality. She was a prominent suffragist who, in her attempts to fight for gender equality, was constantly put down with sexist ideas. She was told that she was smart, but not beautiful, smart, but ugly, not just by people, not just by people who are against the suffragist movement, even by white suffragists and by local papers across the country, in Cleveland, in Indianapolis, and in Memphis. Despite all this, she starts her own first ever all-black suffragist club called the Alpha Suffrage Club, and she creates one of the first kindergartens for black children in Chicago. She was a mother with Barnett. They had children together, and she really took it upon herself to fight for intersectional issues. She worked with the National Association of Colored Women, and she was actually a founder of the NAACP. She was initially left off of the leadership, then she was added on, and then she left because she did not like the elitist values that they were promoting in the NAACP. She was so important and famous that when she died, her house became a national landmark. She has awards named after her, like the Ida B. Wells Award that is given by the National Association of Black Journalists. And there's actually a museum named the Ida B. Wells Museum and Cultural Center of African American History. She inspired a generation of civil rights leaders. She was an incredible journalist, and without her work, we would not be able to fight for racial justice in the way that we are today. We should say that there are still many problems that exist. If she was alive today, she would be fighting against these problems. We still have rampant poverty. We still have economic injustice. We still have racial injustice. We still live in a racist system. We still live in a world that has the problems of gender inequality. She would be fighting for all of these things. But we are better equipped to fight against these things because of the work of people like her. The work of investigative journalists is very, very powerful. And so for these reasons, we need to really uphold her legacy and learn more about her and other people like her. And when you start to appreciate journalism more, you'll start to see why the Khashoggi assassination was so important. It was an important landmark event because of what it means to have investigative journalism. And we will be talking about this next week. We'll be going through the report that the Biden administration released, as well as comparing it and contextualizing it with the events that happened leading up to the murder. So this concludes this week's episode of the UniBytes podcast. If you would like more content, you can listen to our other episodes, and you can follow us on our Instagram at UniBytes podcast. We have episodes every Saturday and Sunday, so I will be seeing you next Saturday. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day.